Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like comfort, worms and treacle. Or (laughs) sitting, hitting and slitting, fitting, knitting and outwitting. But what, what I really want to do, Sam, is I want to do something on mullets, the history of mullets. Have you noticed that? Teenage boys are getting mullet haircuts. Mm. It's extraordinary. It's like it's like watching Neighbours from the 1980s. I think it's, it's just bizarre. <laughs> However, this is to monstrously digress, as always, uh, because what we will be doing in this show is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis, who knew that the history of rain is in fact all about superstitions, rain-making, rain-dances, prayers for rain. It's about Jonathan Swift and the etymology of its raining cats and dogs. It's about Hollywood rain scenes in Singing in the Rain. It's about the 16th century explorer Francisco de Aureliana. It's about Alexander von Humboldt and the Americas. It's about World War I and the trenches and so much more. It's also mm. all about COP26. Or, who knew that the history of skin, skin, it has a history, is in fact all about the history of love and beauty, seduction and eroticism. It's about the skin as a canvas onto which society imprinted itself. Tattoos, scars, markings, colour, race, identity. It's also all about protection and the consumption of skins. It's about fur and leather. And it's also all about Halloween via books bound in human skins, witches and amniotic membranes and love spells. <laughs> that was a cracker of an episode. It was. Guys, you really must listen to that. Uh, it's, uh, histories of the unexpected classic to go, go down in the history books itself. You're probably wondering who is telling you all of these teasing facts. Let me just say that if history was a lost wallet crammed with notes, 10s, 20s, 50s, this man would have picked it up, rummaged through it, but not, as you were guessing, you know, he wouldn't have stolen it. He wouldn't have stolen any of that historical currency of knowledge. He would have carefully analysed the notes for what they could tell us about the past before ensuring that the wallet was returned to its rightful owner, thereby placing him forever in debt to historical research. 
See what I did there, James? I he see is exactly what you did there. Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a debt-related historian, he'd only be the exact opposite of a debtor bound <laughs> for Marshalsea Prison. Instead, he'd be the governor of the Bank of England, a position that goes back to the 17th century so steady and fiscally sound is he in weighing out the facts of the past so judicious and able is he at ensuring the solvency of past facts so grave and statesmanlike is he at ensuring the liquidity of the historical assets at his disposal yes you've guessed it it's your friend and mine the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis Hello, everyone. Basically, our podcast is turning into introductions now. We should just do our introductions then. A ten-minute introduction. We should do the history of introductions, actually. Uh, Today, um, we are doing... This is one of a two-parter inspired by Squid Game, which I suspect a lot of you will have watched on Netflix. I've certainly watched it. James has certainly watched it. Uh, Today, we are doing the history of debt. I hope you've worked that all out. And the history of Squid will surely follow very, very soon. So make sure you listen out for that. Um, So Squid Squid Game James, um, Squid James Game, Squid Jab Jab, Squid Game James. Um, Loved you, it. Uh, for those for those who don't know, could you give us as our resident movie critic? <laughs> can you uh, just give us a brief rundown on what on earth is going on in okay, Squid Game? Squid Games is on Netflix. It is a brilliant Korean drama, utterly brilliant. And imagine it as a sort of Hunger Games meets. Um, Battle Royale meets Lord of the Flies meets, um, I suppose it meets meets sort of people who are who are in deep debt. So the idea is that there is this uh, organisation uh, that goes around and rounds up a load of people who are basically gambling aholics. So they are addicted to gambling and they find themselves in enormous debt. So much so that their lives in the real world are just meaningless. They're in a lot of trouble. They're almost about to go into prison. Their personal lives are breaking apart. And then individuals come out and play a game with them, uh, a gambling game, and then enable them to earn some money. And then they leave them a little card and the card has a number on it and then they phone up and... They say, yes, I would like to come to, you know, your island. Um, Well, they don't know that this is going to happen, but they would like to have a go in the Squid Games. And basically, they then got taken off in a car. They're gassed, so they don't know where they're going. They turn up and they are there with 400 and so other people who then play a series of, I think it's six games or so. And at the end of the game, they are, if they win at the end, they get to take home an extraordinary amount of money but then it is quite bloodthirsty as they go through these these games not to sort of spoil um the first episode for you but i will um the first game uh, involves them they all they're all herded out into this what is a sort of an outside walled area there is an enormous metal doll there who turns around and it's to play that's almost that game where grandmother's footsteps uh in the united kingdom where you you walk up behind uh, somebody and then they turn round. If they see you, 
you are out of the game. However, in Squid Games, what happens is you then get shot by a sniper. And so of the 400 or so, half of them are executed in the first game. So it's deeply shocking. And this is the first sort of sense that you get that it is going to be uber violent like that. And then the sort of the gang sort of turn against each other. But it's actually really... It's really meaningful. Debt plays a very important part in people's identity, in their motivations, in what they want to do, you know, with the money afterwards. Um, some of some are just out for for greed and the consumption and and lifestyle that they can that they can leave others want to do something you know better to sort of reunite themselves with their family, with their children. Um, so I thought it was absolutely fantastic. We were utterly hooked, and I hadn't seen it before you said that we were doing two episodes on Squid Game. So I promptly went out and over the weekend devoured the entire... Is it eight or nine episodes? It's something like Extraordinarily that, yeah. Extraordinarily good. And I think so original. So original. I haven't seen anything like it for... You know, well, for I've not seen anything ever. like it ever, <laughs> no, ever, ever. And um, the interesting thing I think is the um, that the, the, these these adults are made to play children's games. Yes, and the, um, the if you get them wrong, you die. Um, anyway, so we we're going to do debt, um, and there are all sorts of ways of thinking about debt. I mean, I was quite inspired to look into what was going on in Korea to make someone actually create this TV show. It didn't come out of out of um, uh, just a, a black hole. It, there's a major debt problem in Korea, which has its own history, uh, which I think has been fascinating to look at. Um, it, it explains exactly what's going on. It, it's basically, it's incredibly easy to borrow money in Korea, which has caused the problem. And you could go back and you could look at that history of debt. I was quite intrigued by the 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 ease of which you could borrow money and um, bubbles in the past, economic bubbles, particularly the Dutch tulip bulb uh, markets bubble, that, that, that sprung to mind here. So this is the 16th century and um, tulips start arriving in Northern Europe. And of course, uh, you, you might, that might surprise you, but uh, tulips came down the Silk Road. Tulips are exotic. Tulips do not naturally grow in Northern Europe. So the uh, the Silk Road trading routes, they start bringing in tulips as a organic living object. I suppose it's like a living version of silk. Uh, everyone with any means suddenly wanted to have it. People started borrowing enormous amounts of money to own a um, own a tulip bulb. I suppose a bit like the NFT nowadays. And uh, it all went wrong. Um, the bubble burst and lots and lots of people were be uh, were made bankrupt. It's very interesting, actually, at its height, you've got these bulbs which are exchanging, um, well, being exchanged for a, a huge amount of money. Um, several times, but eight or nine times an annual, uh, uh, someone's average annual income. So there's a great example of, of people being plunged into debt by a, a market bubble in, in the 16th century. You've got the South Sea bubble. There are various other economic disasters where um, there's a history of world economics shifting and changing unexpectedly and suddenly plunging thousands and thousands of people into debt who just a week before were not. And I thought that was fascinating, the way that um, the, the world economy has changed over time and altered people's lives very, very quickly indeed. Oh, nice. And that got me thinking about uh, the aftermath of World War One, particularly in Germany, in the Weimar Republic, 
and that sort of treaty, post-Treaty of Versailles and the reparations Germany had to pay and this spiralling debt and hyperinflation, all of those conditions that led to the rise of the Nazi party and the eventual sort of rise to power of, of Hitler. Um, but thinking, thinking about today, we are recording this on the 26th of November, which happens to be my eldest daughter's birthday. So happy, Ooh, birthday, happy birthday, eldest daughter. Uh, but it's also Black Friday. And I was reading in the newspaper yesterday an article about the people warning people to be very careful around Black Friday because you know if you can't afford it don't buy it and there is an s there people are going to spend an estimated 8.7 billion pounds in the UK alone so you know um a lot of that money i imagine will be put on credit uh, for christmas so it, that got me thinking about how we start thinking about the history of debt debt and consumption and and wants money lifestyle and then think about it in terms of uh, expansion of economies banks credit uh, attitudes towards debts so we're thinking about morality and the church how debtors are are perceived think about the mechanics of loans and the law and calling in debts think about punishments and prisons so the marshalsea prison for example uh, in London uh, that housed uh, prisoners, debt collectors and bailiffs, and then the, the impact of debt on individuals, on the self, identity, standing in society. And a couple of brilliant books that I would recommend to you, Brutes H. Mann's uh, Republic of Debtors, uh, Bankruptcy in the Age of American Independence, which is a brilliant book. And basically, this is it's a period you know you know a lot about this sort of period in the in in America, Sam, from a sort of maritime uh, perspective. Um, but you know, debt is really sort of endemic within the life of of early America, um, and it's connected to sinfulness at the beginning of the 18th century, and and it's connected to the right to imprison debtors. You know, this is something that isn't questioned at all. But by the beginning of the 19th century things have changed so imprisonment of debtors is under attack insolvency is no longer seen as something that is a moral failing it's something that instead is seen in economic terms as a setback and what this book does this republic of debtors is it looks at the transformation in early american society essentially from uh, uh, early america where uh, debt is sinful and you can be imprisoned for it to actually something that is you know that is much more to do with with economic setback so it goes through through all of that um another brilliant book that i'd recommend for you is margot finn's the character of credit personal debt in english culture 1740 to 1914 and margot finn is the most extraordinarily able historian and this book is absolutely amazing and it it looks at very similar sort of very similar sort of sense to the, the other book I mentioned but it looks at the this period as one of transition um, where actually what you're seeing is many of the functions of credit that you see in the early modern period are still there in the 18th century so you think about formal and informal loans, gifts of money, begging, borrowing, all of those kinds of things. Um, that, and, and also, it's not as sort of modern a period that you're seeing, as you, as you might think. So credit relations are not simply relations between, between banks. They're not necessarily formal ones. They're also between friends and neighbours, 
um, and, and sort of networks of mutual lending, for example. And the book looks, it's got three big themes that it looks at. Um, and it's looking at the connection between, you know, them all about debt. And the first one is, looks at representations of debt in novels, in diaries and memoirs, and the transformation of imprisonment for debt and the use of small claims court to mediate d disputes between creditors and debtors. So it's got some brilliant stuff about diaries and autobiographies in there and charts the way in which what we see is a sort of is a is a transformation where debt is seen as something that that rather than being immoral Christian doctrine actually treats debtors as 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 pitiable people so that debts are seen as misfortunes debtors are seen as unfortunate so I, that's something I would sort of I would point both of those tomes in your direction I think splendid books to read uh, wow, very good for Christmas alongside your histories of the unexpected signed <laughs> copies uh, you should be buying you should be buying uh, these books we do. We have other histories of the unexpected, our main book with so many different subjects and also our little series books on the Vikings, the Romans, World War Two and uh, the Tudors. Uh, great stuff and a perfect, perfect little Christmas present. Um, James, I was thinking, having thought about tulips, I was thinking about the opposite of them and what uh, the history of, of something which could retain its value, which... Um, suddenly struck me as I'd, I'd look at the history of gold because the history of gold really does have quite a lot to do with the, the history of debt, the changing history of debt. And it's all to do with purity and working out the value of things, which I really thought was fascinating. So humans have always been interested in gold. For, it has got so many fascinating properties. It's non-reactive, it's malleable, it's durable, it doesn't corrode, um, it's inert, and of course it's exceptionally beautiful. I think the, the malleability of it is really interesting, and the fact that you can melt it down and you can you can uh, you can mould it into the most beautiful decorations. Or if you're Tutankhamun, you can have a have a death mask made out of gold. Um, it also uh, links with one of my favourite of all historical documents, which is the wonderful Turin Papyrus. It was made for Ramesses IV around 1150 BC. It's in Turin. It's in the Museo Egizio. And if you want to go and see something quite extraordinary, do go and see the Turin Papyrus, because it is an Egyptian map of gold mines, um, and it demonstrates the first bureaucratic kind of uh, um, links with the whole gold mining process. And what I think is particularly wonderful about it, two things particularly wonderful about it. The first is it's got its own uh, location in the history of origami because it's one of the earliest folded documents that have ever survived. Um, and the second thing about it is that it was actually used by archeologists in the 19th and 20th centuries to track down Egyptian gold mines. They found 200 of them. What a, what a wonderful time to be an archeologist. Anyway, um, so the Egyptians are mining gold, the Romans uh, mine immense amounts of gold. And you need to think about how gold is used and, and the, the whole system of exchange as well. So yes, people would exchange, say, gold rings in Egypt for um, uh, as a type of currency, but also gold dust, pieces of gold, silver as well. But um, th this whole bartering system really has, it's very limited because a bartering system depends entirely on both parties wanting what the other person has. 
And that fundamentally changes when money is invented, when the money itself has a certain degree of value which can be relied upon. The problem is, right, that the purity of something like gold varied according to where it was mined. So you could take it from one mine and you'd have a lump the size of a golf ball, say, if you were lucky enough, and that would could be twice or three times as valuable as a similar sized lump of gold mined from somewhere else. And the man who really sorted this out was King Croesus, and he's um, ancient Greek, so you need to think around uh, five, the late 6th century BC, 580s BC. Um, and he eventually loses out to the Persian king Cyrus the Great. So it's th that kind of period. Anyway, Croesus becomes incredibly wealthy and it's all to do with working out a way of guaranteeing the purity of gold. And what happens is that his engineers work out a way of drawing out the silver content from gold. So most gold is, is actually alloyed with silver. And if they could draw out the silver content, then he'd end up with something that was 99% pure gold. And then you could choose to alloy it with a, a more consistent certain specific amount of silver. The point about this means is that you suddenly have a guaranteed level of purity and that becomes a reliable medium for exchange. And that means you can start getting change for purchases. So if I buy something with a coin, but the actual value of it is less than that, then I get some change back. And it also means that you can start um, building up debt, you can control the debt, and you can uh, have faith and a sort of reliability on the quantities of money, the quantities of value which are owed from one person to another. Um, so James, the, the history of coinage is a really important part, part of it. Um, there is an archaeology of debt, you see. Oh, I bet there is, Sam Willis. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hmm. I bet there is. So I want to talk to you about uh, the material culture of debt, so the sort of spatiality of debt. And I want to talk about prisons, debtors' prisons, 
Um, because for a lot of uh, the, the, the sort of 17th and 18th century, you could be imprisoned for uh, having a debt. And I want to tell you about one particular uh, prison in particular, which is the Marshalsea uh, Prison, uh, which is a notorious prison in Southwark, which is on the on the River Thames. Uh, and it's a prison that was was in use between 1373 and 1842. And it was became particularly well known for uh, housing the or imprisoning the poorest of London's debtors. Um, and it, it's thought that over half the population of prisoners in the 18th century were in fact imprisoned because they owed money. So they were imprisoned for their debt. And what's really interesting about the Marshalsea prison is that it's really it's really quite a sort of complicated place to describe. It's sort of like, uh, imagine a sort of a, an Oxbridge college, you know, um, in the sense that if you were if you were fairly uh, well to do and could afford um, fees in the prison, you you had access to the bar, the shop, the restaurant, you know, and you could basically, you know, you could basically live a, a sort of privileged life until you had paid off your your debt. For others, though, it was actually an appalling place to be with you crammed into you know people basically dozens of people crammed into nine small rooms and we know about these prisons um for from a range of different sources and i'm going to just sort of run you through a couple of them um one of the main sources that we have is from john howard who was a prison reformer and during the 1770s he toured around the country inspecting prisons um, and he presented uh, his investigations in a 1777 uh, printed work called The State of Prisons in England and Wales. And what's extraordinary here, Sam, is the the really stark conditions that he uncovered. So there was a jail uh, owned by the Bishop of Ely where prisoners had 10 years earlier than he'd, he'd looked, been kept chained to the floor on their backs with spiked collars round their necks and iron bars over their legs. Um, listen to this one. The Duke of Portland uh, in Chesterfield had a one-room cellar uh, in which were found four prisoners with no heating, no straw, so no, you know, nothing to really sleep on uh, in a in a cellar that had basically hadn't been cleaned for months, so it was just disease-ridden. Um, there was a jail in Penzance owned by Lord Arundel, uh, where John Howard found a debtor in a room that was basically 11 feet by 11 feet and 6 feet high, with one small window on it. And the door of the room hadn't been opened for you know, four weeks. Um, so really, really terrible conditions. One of the um, one of the sort of other great sources for looking at the experience of debtors in prisons is something called uh, a journal of my life inside the Marshalsea, uh, which was written 
by a man called John Baptiste Grano, who lived between 1692 to around 1748. And he's famous for being a trumpeter at the Opera House and and London's Haymarket. And not just any old trumpeter. He's George Frederick Handel's trumpeter. And he kept (laughs) this... That's cool. Great CV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he kept this this diary uh, of his... 458 day incarceration from 30th of May 1728 until the 23rd of September 1729 Um, and his debt came about because he had financial problems with the South Sea bubble of 1720 which you were talking about earlier Sam and you know it's partly because he this is somebody who you know, who didn't have inherited wealth, wealth wasn't based on land, um, you know, he basically had to live hand to mouth as a as a as a trumpeter and and got into debt and therefore was imprisoned um was imprisoned in May seventeen twenty eight for owing ninety nine pounds to Andrew Turner and, and others. Uh and he was held on the master side of the prison, which catered for wealthier uh people. Um and he had to pay prison fees. Um, and and actually, I think one of the things that I think was really interesting uh, reading Margot Finn's book is actually one of the reasons that, that these prisons, uh, one of the things of one of the ways of re looking at these prisons is not a way of actually punishing people. It was actually keeping them safe from their creditors who were coming after them for the money. But if you're interested in having a look at this, it has been published, this this diary, uh, and the 510-page manuscript is in the Rawlinson Manuscripts in Oxford University's Bodleian Library. Now, I will leave you with a final... Um, with a final uh, example, and this was actually one of my favourite examples of a debtor. And there are all sorts of famous debtors from Ben Johnson, um, John Donne, all sorts of people who ended up in prison for for, for debt. But one of my favourite ones was uh, a man called Samuel Foote, who, born into a fairly uh, wealthy family um, in, you know, down in the the West Country, um, he uh, he basically is put into uh, the Fleet Prison, which is a debtor's prison, uh, again in London on the in on the 11th of December, uh, 1742, at the age of 22. But what's extraordinary about him is that this man, who goes on to be uh, a, an actor and a sort of theatrical impresario, um, is just the most eccentric and extraordinary individual. So at the age of 22, he's basically um, been thrown out of the University of Oxford because he's in debt. He failed as a lawyer, so he goes to the Inns of Court, but is much more concerned with, you know, talking to his friends in coffee houses. Having no money, he then decides that he's going to marry well. So he marries a woman uh, partly for her money, uh, blows all her money, you know, living it up in, in London. Uh, in coffee houses, getting expensive clothes, and he is then committed to the Fleet Prison, owing uh, what at the time was £650, which is the equivalent today of £60,000. And he basically gets, writes his way out of, of you know, his debt, goes onto the stage, he, he becomes a sort of, a, 
you know, fairly well-known uh, actor. He, um, you know, has a role to play in, in the Haymarket Theatre. There are riots with him. He's just an extraordinary character, not your sort of, yeah, your your sort of poor, downtrodden, um, de- lower-class debtor. This is somebody who is flamboyant, who's artistic, who's theatrical, you know, and, and you could imagine... You know the kind of person in um, in 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 Daniel Defoe or Mole Flanders or something like that. So he's a real sort of, you know, interesting guy. Sounds wonderful. I'd like to have spoken with him. <laughs> gone gone for coffee <laughs> with him. <laughs> yeah. How did you get out? How did you get into your debt? How did you get out of your debt? Debt. It is um does create some very good stories. Yes. Uh, well, I, I, James, you've shared them with us, and I am now in your debt for oh. you telling me all of these stories and for improving improving my knowledge of history. And I'm just going to end with this idea of being in people's debt, and I really like that. What made me think about it was um, the recent death of Frederick F.W. de Klerk, Frederick Willem de Klerk. He was the South African politician, Nobel Peace Prize laureate. He's state president of South Africa from 89 to 94, um, and he was uh, crucial in laying the foundations for the end of apartheid and freeing Nelson Mandela and helping Nelson Mandela uh, achieve power and then guiding him through those early years of power. So um, one of the most extraordinary people, and we're all in a debt for him, for showing us a world which is, um, which is a more... More, more, more egalitarian, less racist. So you can be in other people's debt. Everyone who's listening, have a think a little about whose debt you are in, um, and it'll it'll make you feel uh, either awful or quite kind. <laughs> a debt, debt to Nelson Mandela as well, and the uh, you know, um, and the activists around him. I want to end with a with a sort of uh, with a guide that if you are interested in thinking about debt in researching debt and in fact looking at debtors in your family those of you who are genealogists and are interested in tracing your family looking at debt records is actually one of the places that you may end up being able to trace them uh, it may mean that you then find out that you've you're related to somebody who's a, who's a debtor and imprisoned and, yeah, and you may and not want you, to know you that. now owe the money that... exactly, exactly. <laughs> but if you go to the national archives um website and you type into google national archives bankrupts insolvency and debtors there is a really brilliant how-to guide to look for records of bankrupts and insolvent debtors and it takes you all the way through the different kinds of things that you can look at how to get a search started teaches you to look in the london gazette for example, it gives you the link. You can click on there and then you can search for. I just put in a search term debt and got up all sorts of things. And basically the London Gazette um, printed uh, notices of people who were in debt. And I have a page here, page page. 1968 from the 27th of July 1841 notice is hereby given that Henry Ravel Reynolds Esquire Her Majesty's Chief Commissioner for the Relief of Insolvent Debtors will on the fourth day of August 1841 at the hour of 10 in the forenoon precisely attend at the courthouse of Beaumaray in the County of Anglesey and hold a court for the relief of insolvent debtors pursuant to the statute. And so it, it gives all these kinds of all these kinds of notices. And then if there are people that you that you find um, 
You can then try and chase them up in the files. You can have a look at insolvent debtor records. Uh, there's a sort of big collection of things there. So there are declarations of insolvency and inability to pay. There are big collections of debtors' prison records that you can have a look at. You can have a look at applications for release. Uh, so people actually applying to get out of prison bankruptcy case files uh, for the period 1753 to 1979, bankruptcy proceedings. Um, so all sorts of things that you can get your teeth into. Court of Chancery records before 1832, bankruptcy appeals, bankruptcy functions of the Board of Trade, bankruptcy procedures, and then a very useful link to further reading uh, and tomes that can be bought in their bookstop. So a really, we're back to our sort of how to be a historian here, Sam. But if you want to go and find out about the history of debt and whether there are debtors in your family tree, uh, go and check out the National Archives website. Lovely stuff, James. A bit of practical advice for everyone listening. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our History of Debt, part one of our two-part on Squid Game. The History of Squid coming up next. Um, if you want to keep in touch, find out what James and I are doing. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, all things to do with the history of the sea, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Excellent, brilliant podcast. You should, you should definitely check that out. Uh, and if you want to follow me on social media, I am at James Daybell on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are also on Facebook, so come and find us there. We also have a lovely website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, with a shop uh, just in time for Christmas, where you can have the aforementioned signed books on the Tudors, on World War II, on Romans and on Vikings. We also have a big book. Sam does an extraordinarily fabulous signature all over the frontispiece and I do a little sort of honorific signature in the down in the bottom <laughs> right hand corner showing how <laughs> deferential I am uh, we are also on Patreon so if you want to uh, be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected that would be super um, and uh, well stay well out done stay, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well done I'm going to stay say out of debt. <laughs> uh, enjoy the squid games uh, if, you, if you feel like watching it um it's slightly bloodthirsty, uh, for those of you who don't like that kind of thing. Uh, but if you're happy with Quentin Tarantino-esque stuff, uh, really good. And Hunger Games, uh, really good viewing. <laughs> Lovely stuff, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.